Welcome to the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, a podcast by Noibu, where we explore the elite strategies and cutting edge insights with our expert guests. Get ready to propel your e-commerce business to the next level with your hosts, Kalen and Philip. Welcome to the e-commerce toolbox, Experts Perspective. Joining us today from the sunny state of California, we have Natalia Walicki, who recently moved back from not-so-sunny United Kingdom. She's held many positions and has climbed the ranks most recently at a company called Kazoo out of the UK, and she headed up the product team as Director of Product and UX. So joining us today is Natalia. Welcome. Thanks so much, Kaylin. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, to start off, your career trajectory has kind of looked a lot like the Golden State Warriors. So tell us a little bit about your early roles and how you're able to climb up into such a senior role at such a young age. So talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to because I think it's an interesting trajectory that a lot of people in product can connect with. I got into product in a very untraditional way. I actually started my career in politics. I was a fundraiser. I was living in San Francisco at the time and all of my friends were in tech and tech seemed like the cool place to be, right? So a lot of, I think, what you talk about with folks, what we'll talk about today is kind of being at the right place at the right time. And it just so happened that the founder of the company I was working with founded a startup with a friend. So I went over there as a product manager. I dabbled in operations. I did product. I did customer service. I did everything. So I like to say that my startup experience in that first foray was learning exactly what you shouldn't do in product, which I think sets you up pretty nicely for a fun product career. After that, my husband actually got the opportunity to move to London. And so I figured, why not? We always wanted to move abroad, and we did. And there is where I found Kazoo. I actually joined Kazoo as the first product manager and one of the first 100 employees. I joined right before we launched our website in December of 2019. And we grew from 100 to over 5,000 employees across Europe in about three years. So it was super amazing experience. And because we had so much growth, our tech team was growing and changing and we were launching lots of products. And I had the privilege of working with some amazing mentors who helped me kind of shape my product ethos and helped me drive towards opportunities that got me to where I was as director. Cool. Awesome. That's always exciting. I think it's very humble for you to say right place, right time. I mean, there's always a certain element of that, but I think obviously hard work and results are what allow people to drive up in their career. But I'm really interested in kind of double clicking into Kazoo a little bit. So maybe talk to me a bit about the brand, kind of the ethos of that brand, and obviously a lot of success there, not only at your personal level, but the company. So maybe talk to us a bit about them. Yeah. The fun thing behind Kazoo, I think, is kind of the mission and what it stands for, right? Which is just transforming the way that people buy used cars online. The idea set out by the founder, Alex, in kind of late 2018, early 2019, was to make the experience as simple as buying anything else online, which in the UK at the time was pretty unheard of for a vehicle. You have traditional sellers and you're kind of used to the traditional experience, right? You go to a showroom, you kind of have something in mind, you have a salesperson kind of talk to you about it, and then you either buy it there or more likely you go home and you do finance. And the whole process kind of takes some time, right? And there was definitely a need for it in the market and it was an untapped market. And so the idea behind it was to be super customer obsessed from the beginning, which I think 
is really what set us apart and what kind of helped us create this brand of being customer obsessed and customer centric. And I never worked for a company that was so driven towards that, right? So one of the things that we made sure that we did from the very beginning was we built out the C-suites and then we hired the teams accordingly, which I think is different for startups, right? You start with a small team and you kind of grow outwards. But the kind of growth of the company made sure that we had the pillars in place to help the team succeed. And we had fantastic growth. Like you said, I think most recently as August of 2023, we've sold over 130,000 vehicles in the UK. We grew quite quickly. We went public of August of 2021. So, you know, insane growth and just a really, really fun experience overall. That's awesome. And one thing that you said kind of stuck out to bring me to my next question is talking about customer obsessed. So maybe a two-part question. Can you maybe just define what that means? Because I feel like that has kind of a specific meaning in every different company. And the second question that I have, which is what I'm really interested in understanding, is understanding of how that definition of customer obsessed evolved as the business grew. So I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a really good question because I think a lot of people can say, and a lot of companies can say they're customer obsessed without actually knowing what that means. And so I'm glad that you asked because I think the definition as I define it, and I think a lot of people will, is you put the needs of the customer in front of the business. And you can't always do that. So you kind of have to pick your battles and you have to choose when to do it. And I think what led nicely into that was how we started and when we started. And I'm going to talk mainly about the tech and the product team, but I'll talk a little bit about our CX, our customer experience team. We started as a pretty lean product team, kind of focusing on the experience of checkout and finding a car, right? But we quickly understood that the whole operational component is really important too. How do customers get their car? What is that experience like? So we had pillars that were focused on the search experience, the buying experience, the delivery experience. And those pillars in turn turned kind of into teams. And the most important thing that we found, and I think rings true for a lot of these product teams, is they have to be empowered. And I think a lot of people will use that word, but it means for us a couple of things. It means making sure that the product managers and the teams have context into the decisions that are being made. You're aligning multiple departments. So you have your customer experience department, your stakeholders, everybody's aligned with the mission of customer obsession. You're proactive rather than reactive. And you have freedom, right? You have freedom to make mistakes and you have freedom to kind of go out and talk to customers. And we started with that at the very beginning and that evolved in a positive way because we got bigger. So, you know, we had more teams. We had a dedicated UX team, a dedicated research team. And I think people kind of don't take those for granted sometimes because it really helps the arm of understanding what your customers need. But we also embedded that customer obsession within our engineering teams. You know, we made sure that engineers were talking to customers, listening to phone calls, going to our call center, things like that. And as a digital marketplace, we started as the only company that was doing what we did in 2019. But quickly, we welcomed a lot of competitors to the space and we had to keep up with what they were doing and vice versa. And that's good because that healthy competition makes sure that you're always staying on top of your toes and kind of seeing what customers really want and ultimately what they need. One final point on this one, which I think is important to make, is that when we launched, you know, there was no one doing what we were doing. So we had to build that trust with customers. Think about buying a car online, never seeing it in person, and then getting it delivered to your house. You're like, what? how is that going to work? 
So that was our biggest challenge. And I think making sure that we were sticking with what the customer expected and building that trust with them throughout the whole journey, I think that that's really what helped us evolve with the customer needs because we set out from the very beginning to make sure that we had those pillars in place. Cool. All right. Well, appreciate the answer. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And I think as you guys grew, you guys likely came across more and more data sets from your customers. Could you maybe talk to me about how not only as a PM, but then how you directed the team to be able to parse out noise from signal when it comes to data, which is kind of one of the key, at least in my experience, roles of a product manager? Yeah. And I wish we had kind of more colleagues like you at the time, because I think probably your company and others could have helped us with this. But I think you'll understand our little challenge. We came into a, quite a challenge, actually, before I answered your question of we actually didn't have a lot of data because, you know, we're not a traditional e-commerce website like Amazon or in the UK was ASOS, where you have hundreds of thousands of visitors coming in looking at T-shirts, right? You have a specific segment that's coming in and looking at cars. And so your traffic is much less than you would expect. So our biggest challenge was trying to drive through that noise of that traffic, right? Because it's really easy to make assumptions based off of a small number. So we had and have this amazing data team and their kind of role is just to make sure and help the product teams understand what they're looking at. Because you have to take these numbers and extrapolate insights from them, which is never really that easy. And so one of the things that we've done with a number of teams is we have data scientists embedded within the team based off of the importance of the initiatives that they're working on. So for example, when you're working on the finance funnel, it's tough for us to gather some of that traffic because we can't really track too much because of GDPR rules. But one of the things that we try to do is understand when they hit a certain page, where are they dropping off? How can we extrapolate that into the finance journey and out of it and things like that? So it took a lot of time and I think a lot of patience because you had to do a lot of iterations to make sure that the data that you're getting was actually correct. And then parsing through that noise, I think a lot of it comes down to making sure that not only do you have the right data, but that you have the right forums to talk about that data, if that makes sense. So we would have monthly meetings, then bi-weekly meetings, depending on the data sets of the features we were launching and to kind of go through them with the team and the stakeholders. And that I think is really helpful because then it forces everybody to just look at it in a different lens. I'm sure you've had this experience, right? Somebody brings you a set of data and you're kind of like, I don't know if I really believe that, but I'm not really going to question it because it's on a piece of paper, right? But when you create the forum to have that discussion, I think it leads to really, really interesting signals. And like you said, you kind of get rid of that noise because you have a group of people that are looking at it from different viewpoints. Yeah. And I think there's the quantitative data, like you mentioned, and then there's also qualitative data, which are going to be customer-driven insights. And yes, it's a really good time to ask, how do you balance prioritizing customer-driven insights with data-driven insights, which at some times could be at odds, right? And you'd mentioned before, you guys are not a traditional kind of e-comp funnel that has hundreds of thousands. You could deploy an A-B test and have high intervals. So you probably needed to lean as well on customer-driven insights. So maybe talk to me a bit about how you prioritize that and how you effectively looked at what to bring to the product roadmap and when. 
Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, in our A-B tests, sometimes we would have to run them for two months to get like an 85% confidence. And when you're moving really fast, you don't have that kind of time. So I mentioned our CX team, I think, at the beginning. And that team, working with our product teams, was really valuable in driving these customer insights. And we had a really good cadence of making sure that we were talking to customers daily, listening to customer calls, gathering reviews, gathering feedback, insights. Sometimes I think when people think of a tech team, right, they think of just the website experience. But for us, we wanted to make sure that CRM and everything was a part of that. So you have all this insight, right? So what do you do with it? And how do you get to your OKR planning and make sure that people are actually going to take it seriously? I think that we made a really, really good decision early on to look at our OKRs at a yearly view and then quarterly view and always have one that was focused on that customer's experience, right? So for a lot of teams, it would be CSAT. So you have a certain CSAT score that you don't want to fall below. But for others, it would be your Trustpilot rating. So Trustpilot in the UK is kind of how you build trust within companies and brands. And so, you know, we never wanted to fall below essentially a five-star experience. And that is really not only motivational for teams, but when you're looking at true OKRs, it's really nice to have a number that you can look at. And I think that when it comes to KPIs, and OKRs, those CSAT numbers and those hefty numbers that you can kind of push behind teams is really what helps you prioritize. Like I said at the beginning, the trade-off between customer obsession is sometimes taking customer needs over business needs. And you can't do that every quarter. And so sometimes you just need to have to pick your battles. And if there's really important projects or features or improvements that you feel like you want to make a bet on and you have the data and the information you can make an argument to the business and then you can go forth and execute. And that's, I think, why empowered product teams are super important with customer obsession, because if you give teams the freedom to make these business cases and make sure that they're looking at things in terms of customer insights, at the end of the day, I think that most of the time you'll kind of get what customers are looking for. And I'm happy you brought up OKRs as well, because I think especially in a fast-growing e-commerce business like you guys were, something that we see a lot or I've personally seen is it's very rare that someone's OKRs is going to be centered around tech debt or stability unless there's like heavy stability issues. And that's kind of like a top business. So in my experience, bugs have been more of an afterthought, like reactive and in a longer buying journey, a more considered purchase like you guys. I'm curious what your philosophy is on like technical bugs that could be blocking part of the user experience or damaging it. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think a lot of companies do this very well. And I think some do it better than others. I'm really proud of the way that we did it at Kazoo because of our whole culture around bugs and of triaging issues. We worked in a way that if there was a website issue, right, let's say there was the payment system was down or even something as small as we uploaded the wrong photo of the color of the car, we had a really specific triaging plan that we would use And ultimately, at the end of the day, the process was always find the problem, solve the problem, and then have kind of a retrospective, figure out why did it happen and how can we make sure that it won't happen again. You'll notice that I didn't say anything there about who did it because it doesn't matter. It was never a blame game. There was never a culture of, well, why did you make this happen? How could you do this? It was always a, okay, that happened. Now let's just figure out how we can not do it again. And so we were very, very lucky, I think, in the sense that we didn't have tons of bugs that we had to prioritize and kind of issues that we had to worry about. What we did have to look at was kind of platform changes and infrastructure changes and legacy changes. As our company grew, we had to add things to the platform and we had to do things that we haven't done before. 
And I think prioritizing those against business KPIs and then the customer KPIs was really, really tough. But what I think the teams did a really good job of, and I think this goes back to this context and having really good stakeholder engagement, was we were able to kind of make those trade-offs with the stakeholders because there was a level of trust and understanding of, okay, well, if you spend this quarter, two of your teams spend 10 weeks working on this, we can live with that. And then next quarter, we'll do this. And what also helped that conversation, I think, was having a really clear mission and vision. So going into the quarter, we would say, okay, we're all aligned, let's say, behind revenue. Next quarter, we're going to be all behind this. And as you know, things change and things like that. But that kind of helped guide those conversations because then you didn't have these kind of random things come in like, oh, we have this huge bug that we need to fix now. It's like, well, actually, do we? And I think that that is a really healthy conversation to have. And I think that culture kind of created that conversation and kind of that approach, which is really nice. Yeah, I think it's really important. Like you said, bugs are going to pop up. And I think collaborating on fixing them and then taking it retrospective to try and reduce them from happening in the future, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think it's also to be expected when you grow traffic rapidly and you're adding payment gateways and all these more tactical things that you're going to do with the website, it's going to introduce different issues, right? Or, Or different opportunities to fix bugs. So I'm glad to hear that. And a very similar topic is as the director of product, How did you collaborate with your counterpart to understand and prioritize tech debt over feature development, especially when it comes to OKRs? In my experience, a lot of OKRs are around conversion and driving business goals, where sometimes you might need to slow down to speed up later. So I'm curious how you folks balance that. This is a tricky one to explain, I think, without an example. So I think I'll use an example. But I was also really lucky in that I had a very amazing counterpart in my director of engineering and also was my head of engineering. And we worked really, really well together. When we launched our website, we launched it off of a headless e-commerce platform, right? And we built on top of that. And we did that for ease to launch and kind of speed to launch. Fast forward a year and a half later, (laughs) we realized that we need a lot more than what this platform gives us, right? There's features that you have to manage in terms of an order, exchanges, things like that that we never considered because we were going so fast. And we kind of realized that we had to do an entire platform and build an entire order management system from scratch to get to where we wanted to go. And while that was tech debt, what we did is we essentially classified it not so as tech debt. So the business as a whole could kind of buy into it a little bit easier, if that makes sense. And I think that was really successful for us because that made sure that we put that into that business agreement and alignment behind that feature and what was needed behind it. Even though at the end of the day, it really was a huge piece of tech debt. But we wanted to make sure that people understood that it was more than that, because I think that that is kind of what people don't realize about tech debt, right? It's not just a piece of code you have to rewrite or something you have to redeploy. It is part of your whole ecosystem. And if you don't have something that works, ultimately, it's going to negatively impact the customer. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think even at the SaaS level, like we've seen replatformings on our side as well, not only with our customers, but even internally with the dashboarding. So I think to your point, startups very rarely choose the perfect infrastructure, the end state infrastructure the first time. So it makes a lot of sense. As we look to wrap up, a question I always love asking is, what do you think one thing is that e-commerce brands or anyone with a shopping funnel should stop doing on their website? Wow, that is such a good question. I think people try to cater to too much. And I think one of the things that we try to do is kind of personalize your experience. 
And I think sometimes when you're going through specific journeys, it's really hard to look through the noise and kind of look at what you're looking for. I think that sometimes companies take us as consumers for granted. At the end of the day, you know, you kind of know what you're looking for and what you want to buy. You don't need to be inundated with all this information and everything and all this hoopla and all this jargon and all this kind of trendy stuff. I'll use AI as an example. I know what I want to buy. I don't need some AI chatbot to explain to me what I need to buy. And I think in certain industries, that's really helpful. But I think sometimes people are getting too in with the trend instead of thinking about what their customers really want. And I love to see people take a step back and really get back into that customer mindset. Because I think sometimes you can go really fast and really strong down a narrative and not even take a step back and think, well, does my customer actually even really need this? So for me personally, that's kind of what I would love to see people stop doing. And I think it goes back to one of your guiding principles of putting the customer's needs ahead of yours. And I think in one of our previous podcasts, I spoke to the CEO of Solo Brands and he had a very similar anecdote around treat your customers like you treat your mom and then your customers are typically happy. So it's kind of right up there as well with exactly what you're saying. So look, I really appreciate your time, Natalia. I'm sure everyone really enjoyed this conversation like I did. And yeah, if anyone wants to find you, how could they find you? Yeah, so I think the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm always kind of looking to connect with people who are interested in e-commerce customer obsession. And if you ever do find yourself on the sunny California coast, please do reach out. Always happy to meet people in person. It's a small world. So it's always nice to hear from people who are interested in learning more. Awesome. Thanks again, Natalia. Thank you. The e-commerce toolbox expert perspectives is brought to you by Noibu. To find out more about Noibu and how we can help you debug your e-commerce site and rocket your revenue, visit www.noibu.com. That's N-O-I-B-U.com. And then make sure to search for the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Noibu, thanks for listening.